This is the third episode in our series focused on legal challenges construction contractors face in the federal procurement space. In this episode, Cy Alba and Sarah Nash, attorneys in Polero Maza's government contracts and labor and employment practice groups, discuss the False Claims Act issues facing construction contractors and protection strategies for avoiding them. Before we join the discussion, we have some business to handle. This podcast is for informational purposes only. We are not rendering legal advice. Your unique facts and circumstances could change the advice that would apply, and the rapidly changing nature of the law may cause the information in this podcast to become outdated. Let's get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to our latest iteration of the construction series and compliance issues. Today, we're going to be going through construction industry concerns under the False Claims Act. Not really a fun topic for anyone, but unfortunately, a topic that we've seen more of recently. I know we've done a couple FCA presentations outside of this series, but this series we particularly focused on construction issues. I am Cy Alba. I am a partner in our government contracts group. And I deal with a number of FCA issues and investigations of, of all sorts or even internal investigations and things of that nature, along with a host of other things. And I'm here with my partner, Sarah. Sarah, do you want to introduce yourself? Sure. Hi, everyone. I'm Sarah Nash. I am a partner in the Labor and Employment Practice Group. We also deal with FCA issues and often those issues are related to Davis-Bacon Act as many of you who are working in the construction industry are all too familiar with. So we have been navigating our fair share of sort of compliance and certification issues in that scope. So we thought it would be a good idea to team up with Sai on this topic, which is very relevant for a lot of folks out there. And hopefully we can talk about some interesting issues over the next hour. It's not necessarily the funnest topic because of the consequences, but I think it is interesting. So we'll try to keep it interesting for you folks out there. Indeed. Now, people probably know who we are, but a little bit about Polaramaza. We're a law firm in, in D.C. We have a, now an Annapolis office and an office in Boulder, Colorado, so kind of spreading out. We do all kinds of issues dealing with government contracts, standard litigation, labor and employment, and also business transactions, sort of M&A activity and, and that sort of thing. So a lot of different things for a lot of different clients. And then kind of jumping into what we're talking about today, I think as a basis or foundation, Understanding like what the False Claim Act is, it's it's pretty old. It was created during the Civil War when fraud was actually rampant in the procurement space with the union acquiring various goods and services and having major, major issues. It's the main way the government goes after federal contractors as far as damages. You can have some things under the Contract Disputes Act if it's sort of run of the mill like there was an accidental overbilling and it was 100% on accident and government can issue a demand or if things have to be fixed and you breached a contract or something, usually that doesn't fall under the False Claims Act. That usually falls under the Contract Disputes Act. But in most other circumstances, the FCA is really the main, the main vehicle for this. A claim here is, so a false claim, right? A claim can be anything. It's any request for money or property, or it can be a comment, and I'll get into this later, about how to avoid penalties or avoid a payment to the government. It's usually called a reverse false claim. But any sort of statement or writing or email or anything like that made to the government for the purpose of requesting money or avoiding payment is generally considered a claim. Falsity means that it's either improper, incorrect, unlawful, or unjustified. So it's just not true in one sense or another. But like I said, merely being incorrect doesn't really violate the False Claims Act. You might still owe money back to the government for an overbilling or something like that, but it was just a, an honest mistake. It doesn't fall under this. It's more something that falls under the Contract Disputes Act. Where you do get into the False Claims Act is if you had some sort of overbilling or issue that you knew was not accurate, or if you recklessly disregarded the truth of the matter. So if the contract said that it was a cost reimbursable contract and you just ignored it and you billed it as the firm fixed price, let's say, that sort of situation would be you ignoring what's clear on the face of the contract. 
or if you didn't even attempt to understand what the facts were or what the law was on a particular issue, you just assumed you knew what it was and you ran forward, that could also be reckless because you didn't even attempt to understand it. And then lastly, it's not all civil or criminal. It could be either one. So there, there are two different bases under the False Claims Act. The obviously more serious or criminal, which is pretty rare. You really almost have to have knowledge and, and some sort of intent to defraud. And then under the Civil False Claims Act is where most of these issues lie. And it could be, like I said, either knowing or reckless, but there's usually less of a, a malice intent. When you're talking about different types of FCA matters, there's government-initiated matters, which can arise out of any sort of audit or investigation inside of the government, whistleblower complaints, an IG, the Department of Justice, all of them can get involved. Usually, these sorts of types of investigations get initiated through a whistleblower, I would say. To a lesser extent, you have the contracting officers on certain contracts who are, are monitoring what work is happening and what's going on, and perhaps that they could raise an issue to the inspector general directly. Oftentimes, in that case, it doesn't go right to the IG. The CEO will usually notify the contractor of some issue they think is taking place. And then if it's not corrected or if it's been going on for a long time, and even though you did correct it, they still think it's a potential issue, they could refer it to the IG's office. And then from the IG, if they think it's serious enough, they usually refer it to the Department of Justice. That's the usual cycle. However, you do have these outside initiated matters, which is what we call KETAM matter here. And that's KETAM is in the name of the king. So it's when a private citizen brings a lawsuit against a federal contractor in the context we're talking about, but it doesn't have to be, it can be against anybody, but bring a case against a federal contractor in the name of the U.S. government or on behalf of the U.S. government claiming a violation of the False Claims Act. And those things are usually lawsuits, they're filed under seal, and it goes through an investigative process first. And it's hard to tell if you were to get a subpoena from an inspector general or from a criminal investigative unit at an agency or from the Department of Justice, it's difficult to tell whether it's because of some key TAM lawsuit that's been filed or if it's some just internal investigation with the government because they don't tell you. And the lawsuit that's been filed, everyone's like, well, court documents are public. Go look it up. You can't. They're filed under seal and they're kept under seal until the government makes a determination as to whether they want to intervene in the case or not. So it's one of those things where it's hard to tell, but your strategy initial piece is just responding to subpoenas really doesn't change either way. Sorry, can I put on my labor and employment hat really quickly on that same point? So a lot of these complaints are coming from insiders who obviously have, you know, insight into the inner workings of your company. This is where it's a really good idea to have a strong whistleblower policy and reporting policy that encourages individuals to come forward to report if they are aware of misconduct or falsities or a law that's been broken. Because where you are encouraging them to come forward, they are sharing that information with the company and in an ideal world you know, the management is able to address it before it goes beyond the whistleblower. So before it goes to a lawsuit or before it goes to the IG. And so it's just important to have those policies in place. If you have like engaged in conduct that does open you to an FDA claim, you can essentially stop it there by just having a good reporting system. Yeah. And there are mandatory and voluntary reporting mechanisms in the FAR and in, in a lot of your contracts, probably. And a mandatory reporting issue is if you know that there's been or there's credible evidence of a violation of the False Claims Act or some sort of fraud or bribery or any sort of criminal issue under 18 USC, you are required to do an investigation. And if you find that there was credible evidence of such a violation, you have to report it. That's exactly what Sarah's talking about, where if someone reports something, you need to investigate it. You need to look into it. What we usually do in those circumstances is we'll get a bunch of information from the, the company. We'll figure out who are the people who are potential witnesses who know about this. We'll interview everyone. We'll make a determination about the credibility of the statements that were made by the whistleblower and come to a conclusion. I'd say it's maybe 50-50. Sometimes it's, it's even less than that where there's an actual issue. Most of the time, it's the individual not having a clear picture of the full set of information. 
And you don't necessarily want these people running to the government all the time if you're a business owner, right? The company would prefer to take a look at it themselves. And if we make a determination there's an issue there, yeah, then we'll report it in a controlled manner in the appropriate way to report it to the government. Sometimes when you do a report like that, and if, especially if there's overbilling or things, you will have to get an accounting of it. You will have to pay some money back, but you're likely to avoid some of these major issues, which we'll get into. The types of violations is false claim, which is you know you submit something, say a, a bill that you know is wrong. That's the simplest one. False records can be express or implied certifications. Reverse false claim is like I said, where you submit something to avoid having to pay money. I mean, an uh, example of this would I guess be like sort of like a false tax return or something like that. That's the kind of thing if you submit something to avoid penalties could be a reverse false claim. And then there's conspiracy. And I've had cases like this where, uh, say, an individual loans money to a company who's a subcontractor, and the subcontractor claims to be a small business, but that small business is sort of embedded with, let's say I loan the money, they're embedded with my company, and I'm a large business, and I have all this office space, and they're staying with me, and they're using my support for back office support for accounting for all this stuff. I give them a subcontract. And so they're totally relying upon me. We are affiliated. That means they are a large business. And if I'm loaning money and helping them, knowing that they're bidding as a small business on certain subcontracts, that could get me in trouble, even if my business has never done one thing with the federal government ever. The fact is that I'm knowingly sort of supporting or negligently, if I'm not even paying attention to what the small business rules are in that example, you could get into trouble. So getting into like a little more detail, the false claim piece, that first prong is presentment of a false claim for payment. So like I said, misbilling, incorrect descriptions, billing at the wrong rate, wrong contract line item number. If you're running out of money and you want to sort of hide it, that could be an issue. So that's the kind of thing that really gets into a false claim. It's more direct falsity. False records, false statements, it's sort of made in conjunction with a request for payment. So it can be pretty similar, but it's something where it's not that the bill is false, but you're submitting something that says, okay, look, I submitted a pallet of widgets and it was supposed to be widgets and hujimawatsits. And I didn't tell them that the hujimawatsits were, were missing, right? So I did make a delivery. And it might even be a delivery of the same value of goods. And the government might even need that same value of goods. They might need those goods in other places, but you still made a false statement as to what was delivered. And if you build for that, that would also be a false claim. So it's sort of the false statement on top of it. If you said, yeah, I was there, and this is where you get into situations where you tell people I did some service, but you're not actually providing it. So if you think that you your contract allows you to bill so long as your people are there, even if they're not working, it's a firm fixed price contract. If it's a firm fixed price contract, but has some particular line item, right, that says, oh, you have to be here. The firm fixed price is for 40 hours a week for five FTEs. Okay. And let's say you're not there. If you don't send them there for 40 hours a week, they're on vacation. So they're not even going to work. Well, depending on what the contract says, if it just says 40 hours a week, five FTEs, then you cannot bill for that person. So by submitting something and saying, okay, I'm billing, it was a firm fixed price contract, you could be getting into an FCA issue because you were reckless, arguably in that case, or this is what the government would say, in not understanding what your contract said and not fully reviewing the entire contract and assuming firm fixed price is firm fixed price even though it was firm fixed price for a specific number of hours. And so you have to provide that work in that context, again, depending on what the rest of the contract says, there could be allowances for vacation. And then other things too, right? If you're certifying, like for instance, for small business, you're always certifying that you're a small business. If you say, here's my proposal and I'm submitting invoices that recertify expressly that you're complying with all material terms of the contract, then every single time you submit something, it's another false statement. Fraudulent inducement would be all claims for payment 
that are false and you obtain the entire contract under false pretenses. The most common version of this is the small business certification, at least what we see, where someone is saying in their proposal, I am a small business. And it might be, and we'll get into this in a second too, but it might be expressed where you're saying, I am a small business, or it might be implied where the entire contract was set aside for small businesses and you submitted a proposal saying, yep, here, I can do this work. Well, in that context, even though you didn't say I am a small business, the entire thing was set aside for small businesses. And so by the act of submitting a proposal, you're making a certification. And in that case, what the government tends to say is, well, had I known that you weren't a small business or had I known you were affiliated, like in that other example I gave, and the prime can say this too, like, look, you subcontractor knew or should have known you were recklessly disregarding the truth of the fact that you were affiliated with this other large business because of all the connections you had. You submitted a subcontract proposal or you accepted a subcontract from me that was premised upon your small business status, knowing or you should have known that you, that you didn't qualify. And then you caused me to then issue you that subcontract. But for the fact that you lied, I would have never given that to you. So that is another example. And because it was a subcontract for a federal prime contract, and because again, you knew or should have known that all the work you did and the billings that you submitted to the prime were gonna get passed up to the government, that whole chain then makes it a false claim under the False Claims Act because it was a request for payment that ultimately would be paid by the government. And again, you can even go further away with this conspiracy idea that if the person knew or should have known that they were helping you start your business, and it doesn't even have to be for money. I mean, the, the case I had, it was a boyfriend-girlfriend scenario where the boyfriend owned a large business and was giving money, loaning money to the girlfriend's small business and helping her in every way he possibly could so that she was absolutely affiliated and absolutely not a small business. She submitted as a WSB to a prime contractor. And at that point, it went on for a little bit. They got caught up in a much larger investigation. And then the Department of Justice started asking questions. They were going after not only the prime, but also the woman-owned small business that wasn't really a small business. And then also going after this third-party company that never did any work with the federal government. Not one dollar of their work was ever with the federal government. The girlfriend didn't pay the boyfriend to help her. He was just helping her. And even then, we got caught up in a, a conspiracy challenge. So it's something that can be far-reaching where you're making these sort of certifications. It's sort of critical to understand what the implications can be. And I think the next upcoming issue that we might start seeing is some of these cyber issues where SCRM, I know CMMI is kind of getting gutted a little bit right now with CMMI 2.0, but the SCRM, which is Supply Chain Risk Management, those requirements I think are going to continue. The executive order about cybersecurity and about needing a bill of materials for software, that's the kind of thing where people, I think, are going to start getting caught up in issues where they're going to say, they're just going to submit proposals and not even necessarily fully understand everything that they need to have done behind the scenes. And so they're going to be certifying that they've done all these things and, and it won't be accurate. I know DOJ has already said that cyber, they just busted some of the Ukrainian guys I, I heard like yesterday with the pipeline hack, right? And they got the money back and they're prosecuting those guys. In that situation, it just shows how serious this cyber stuff is. And the DOJ has an entire like, task force on it. And as part of that, they said, like, they're not kidding anymore. If you're certifying improperly or falsely or recklessly that you're doing these things and you're not, it could be an issue. And if you're talking in the construction industry where companies, they don't really think necessarily about CUI. A lot of times you don't have CUI. Sometimes you might if you have blueprints and things like that or specific types of contracts. But a lot of the subcontractors and things that are local businesses don't think about all the cybersecurity stuff. And if these things get flowed down, you are, as the prime, going to be responsible. So I think this will become something to keep an eye on in, in the future. Also, hiding costs of data or misrepresenting data, like usually that comes up in the context of cost reimbursable work. 
where you have to provide cost and pricing data. And for one reason or another, you either give incorrect information or if you if you knowingly do it because you're trying to get a higher price, that's the stuff that can get into the criminal realm. That's where it gets worse. But you're required to really understand some of the cost and pricing issues and how your cost buildups are supposed to be done. And if it's not done appropriately, it can be a problem. And you can get caught with this whole fraudulent inducement issue, which also increases the, the damages. So if the government can say, I would have never even given you a contract, then the damages to the government is whatever higher price they would have paid. And if you're talking about specifically small business certifications, the law allows the government to get three times the value of the contract plus penalties on top of that. So if you have a contract that's $10 million, and let's say your profit margin on that is 10%, let's say it's a million dollars of profit for the whole contract across the board, you can end up having to pay $30 million back to the government plus penalties on top of that for every false statement, which would be every single invoice. So that can be anywhere between eleven dollars and $22,000 an invoice. So it really can add up. A couple other things here, like there's a couple different types of certifications. You can have express false certifications, which is sort of what I alluded to before, where you are expressly stating in whatever claim it is you're making or your invoice or whatever, it can be in your proposal, like I am a small business. Or most commonly, the issue we see with construction is the requirement that you have actually paid your subcontractors in full prior to submitting the invoice to the government. A lot of people don't read the contracts to see that requirement in there. And they assume, well, look, I'm a small business. My subs are small businesses. I have pay when paid clauses in all of my subcontracts. So I don't owe them the money. That might be true vis-a-vis -vis the subcontract, but the prime contract might have a requirement that you have paid all of your subcontractors. And that's an express requirement. And if you're saying, yes, I'm submitting it through this portal, and it might even say in the online portal, you're certifying to this, 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 this. That's an express certification you're making that might not be true if you're assuming pay when paid. And that comes up all the time. And we get a lot of disputes also, not just False Claim Act, but also contract disputes where the prime contractor is saying, well, look, I can't afford that. And the truth of the matter is it doesn't really matter if you can't afford it because that was in the, the contract and it can be negotiated. You could try to negotiate it out, but it's still a certification. Another thing that comes up is if, let's say you buy another company or if you are acquired or if a JV member is acquired, you're part of a joint venture, there's recertification requirements for your size status. And that's an express recertification. You are telling the contracting officer, I am or am not still a small business. And if that's not accurate, that's an express false statement. You're just, it was just a lie or reckless disregard for the truth. Same thing with like some of these cybersecurity, like I said, work being billed. If you're saying expressly, like, this is what I did, here's my invoice for you know, 50 hours of my people. And let's say the, the contract, like I noted before, required you to actually perform in order to get paid. Even though it was firm fixed price, it was firm fixed price for that you know, 40 hour example. And you only provided 30 hours because people went on vacation. There was one case I had where somebody went on their National Guard duty. Right. And the contractor just billed because they said, well, you know, they're on sick leave or they're on vacation or they're on their National Guard duty. So I was still paying them. And that doesn't matter, again, depending on the terms of the contract, because I have seen contracts that say, look, 40 hours of time, you have to do that every week or every month or whatever in order to earn the firm fixed price. And if you only hit 30 hours, you didn't earn the firm fixed price because you, it was firm fixed for 40 hours, not firm fixed just to get the job done, which is something that tends to be confusing sometimes for folks. Another good example, I guess, is PPP stuff and forgiveness applications, which we haven't seen, or I haven't seen major issues with, with this, given the wishy-washy nature of the certifications. And we might never, it might be one of those things that just goes below the radar, unless there are certain individuals, right, who made up companies or completely lied about the number of employees. But that would be a good example of the express false certification. They put on the form, I have 50 employees and they had zero. That is expressly false. And that's exactly the kind of thing we're talking about here. Implied false claims is more 
take the small business example. That's probably the easiest one to understand. If you have a small business contract and you're not saying you're a small business, there's nowhere in your proposal where you say, I'm small, I'm SDBOSB. Let's say you're just silent on it, but the entire thing was set aside for small businesses. That's an implied false certification. Then it can be at the prime level, it can be at the sub level, anywhere, right? And then when you're talking about construction in particular, you're also getting into things like buildings codes, you have the various license, you have the permits. Even if you're not saying, yes, I have this license and this license or my subs have it, and I'm meeting all the building codes in this particular design that we're using, and we have all the permits, even if you're not expressly saying that, if it's a requirement of the contract and you're submitting a proposal, or if you've already won the contract, and it's a requirement that just says maybe maybe the requirement was generally you're meeting all state laws, right? Every time you submit an invoice for work that you did, you're impliedly certifying that you met all those requirements. And if there's something that was missed, it could turn into a false claim. Now, this is probably a good place to say, even if you've met all the requirements to be a false claim, right? Let's say you were arguably reckless in disregarding the truth of what the state laws required, and it was an implied certification. The government doesn't always just jump to a false claim. They don't just run to the IG or go to the Department of Justice on every situation. Usually what happens is they'll give you an opportunity to come in and fix it or to pay to get it repaired or something like like that or to change it in some way. And if you do that, it's usually going to end right right there. It would only be a situation where something got bigger or like, for instance, there was a construction project recently where it was supposed to be a certain type of concrete and they bought cheap concrete and they used it. I think it was the Metro. They used it for a whole part of the Metro. The whole thing was wrong, right? That's so egregious. And if you knew what you were doing, you were just trying to save a few bucks and you were violating the contract. That's something that could be an implied certification that it was in the contract. You didn't say expressly that you were going to use that type of concrete. You just agreed to the terms of the contract, and then you use some other cheap concrete. In that case, the entire thing had to be redone, and that was a massive issue. That's the kind of thing where they could go after you because it was so egregious. And the, like anything else in this world, the value matters. If you're talking... probably not turning into a false claim in that case, not worth it. If you're talking a million dollars, maybe. If you're talking a hundred million dollars, probably. So the bigger the work, the more important it is to fully understand like what's what's going on here. Reverse false claims are things again where you're trying to avoid payment. So if you are trying to say, okay, look. If I send something in where I tell the government I use the wrong concrete, I don't have enough money to fix this problem. They're going to call my bond and then I'm going to be stuck with a surety breathing down my neck coming after me personally. So what I'm going to say here is I'm going to say things to the government to avoid having to pay out those damn damages, right? That's the kind of thing where it might not be a claim to get paid. You're not falsifying something to get paid because let's say the contract's over. You're falsifying a comment in order to avoid having to repay money or avoid having to get hit with a claim from the government that then your surety has to come in and handle. That's kind of where things go. Or if, if there was an overpayment, that's actually the first one here is a pretty common thing where let's say it was cost reimbursable or something like that. And maybe you found some errors but you do the contract closeout anyway, and you say, yep, we complied with everything. But you knew there were a couple issues here, and it's at the end of the contract. You've already paid out the subcontractors. You don't want to have to get money back from them, or maybe they'll refuse to give the money back, and you'd have to come out of pocket. So you're telling something to the government to avoid having to repay those amounts. That's a reverse false claim, because you're not getting paid. You're avoiding having to pay. Some recent trends, I think I've talked about some of these, but The DOJ has told me that there's a few things they're really looking at in construction in particular, because they think that's the worst offenders, what I've been told, is limitation on subcontracting requirements. So that meeting the 15%, meeting the 25% of its specialty construction in the mentor-protege program, in particular, mentor-protege joint ventures, because joint ventures have those sort of complicated performance of work rules where it's 
if the mentor and the protege are sharing 15% and 85 is being subcontracted to third parties, the protege has to do 40% of that 15%. And the mentor can do at most 60% of the 15% if that's the way it breaks up. That's an issue because a lot of people misunderstand it. They're using joint ventures and then saying, oh, the protege can do 15% and the mentor can do 85% in the joint venture. No. The joint venture rules are written terribly for construction because it's 60-40 split. Now, if the only thing you're going to be doing, the mentor and the protege, or say an SDVOSB and just a vanilla small business, if inside your JV, you're only doing the minimum 15% and you're going to split that 15% 40-60, okay, that's allowed where the qualified company is doing a minimum of 40%. Fine. But you can't also then turn around and subcontract from the JV work back to the mentor for the other 85%. DOJ also has told me that subcontracts under the mentor, instead of say being under the JV itself, they've tried to roll that up. So if the mentor is doing 60% of the 15 in this example, and all the subcontractors are subs to the mentor for the other 85%, I've had DOJ argue that that all needs to be rolled up. And so you're not looking at 60-40 split of the 15%, you're now having the protege doing 40% of the 15%. And then you're having the mentor doing the other 90% of the contract because of all the subcontract. So you should really have the subcontractors under the JV or under the, the protege, ideally. I'm not sure I really agree with DOJ on that roll-up point, but I'm just saying if you're trying to avoid any even hint of an issue, that's the way I would, would set this up. And also this control thing for mentor-protege, the DOJ has told us they think the mentor-protege program is a vehicle for fraud in a lot of different cases, and they are paying attention to it now. And so even even if you're meeting the limitation on subcontracting rules, there's still other rules out there, right? You still have to make sure that you are meeting the rules appropriately as far as control. So even your mentor-protege agreement says you're going to help with proposals, help with proposal writing, DOJ has kind of said, look, you need to help with that. You don't just do it. You help them do it. And so that's one of the critical things that comes up that is coming up more often is what are you actually doing when it comes to these mentor-protege connections? Are you just helping or are you doing, are you kind of taking over control? And that's, that's a problem. Again, I kind of walked through this already, but these are the performance of work is really one of the issues that's coming up. I've also talked about statutory the penalties here. You usually just get penalties for whatever the damages are, but if you're a small business, it could be three times the total value of the contract, which can be a major problem. And then when you're talking about statute of limitations for FCA issues, it's generally six years. So when the act occurred, you've got generally six years from that date. Or three years from the time the government official charged with investigating the fraud knew or should have known about it. Usually, though, I'll say the six-year time frame is what we look at. So if the government comes back with something or they're starting to hit that six-year mark, oftentimes they'll ask to toll the statute of limitations, which oftentimes it makes sense to agree to that if you're trying to come to a settlement. Otherwise, they'll just file the lawsuit and then you're off to the races, where usually if you can settle first, that's tends to be better. But again, it depends on the amount of money we're talking about and and the particulars of the case. But no matter what, you're never getting into a statute of limitations problem that's longer than, than 10 years. That's the maximum it can ever be. The DOJ tried to argue that because of what they call wartime tolling, that in the war on terror, that since 2003 to maybe arguably when we just left Afghanistan, that the country was at war. And so therefore the statute of limitations should be told, which means it just doesn't run. So you could have committed fraud in 1997 and the government tried to essentially argue that the statute of limitations was told until right now, until we just left Afghanistan. So we leave Afghanistan and then it starts to tick again. So that got shot down, but they did try to make that argument. And so just be aware that they're always looking for an angle here. So If you have contact older than 10 years, absolutely safe. Older than six years, probably safe. And then with that, we get into some of the Davis-Bacon stuff, which is Sarah's bailiwick. Great. Yeah, thanks, Sai. So in addition to those big hot topic issues that Sai touched on, 
a really common area that you got to be particularly careful around is Davis Bacon compliance because we talked a little bit about whistleblowers. There is a strong incentive, not just with employees, but with unions as well, to make sure companies are compliant with their Davis Bacon Act obligations. And in circumstances where they are not, unions or employees often will have a FCA claim in their back pocket. So these are requirements that are not always intuitive and that require a little bit of time and attention when you're trying to comply because we touched on earlier this idea of reckless disregard for obligations. And that is an area that is right in the Davis-Bacon context because there are some requirements that don't always make a lot of sense, but claiming ignorance is not necessarily going to save you from an FCA claim. So just real quickly, I'll go over some background about the DDA and how this ties in specifically with the FDA and pitfalls that are attendant to it. Any contractors performing on contracts in excess of $2,000 for construction will be considered covered under the Davis-Bacon Act. It's a little bit broader than just construction. It also applies to alteration and repair. However, on those contracts, a contractor is obligated to pay employees no less than the locally prevailing wage rates and fringe benefits. Those are benefits that will be incorporated by reference in the contract itself. It will often include a link in your Davis-Bacon contract work to the prevailing wages and fringe benefits. And it's very important that you pay attention to those wage determination rates. In addition to the prevailing practice in the area, I'll talk a little bit about that later, but generally there are going to be two ways that the DOL will determine whether wages are prevailing and what those prevailing rates are. One will be looking at the local union in the area to find out whether their practices apply to, for the most part, employees in the area. Where there is no union, it will, they'll look to ununionized work sites through a basically a survey that's sent out to different contractors in the area. And depending on whether they're unionized or non-unionized, the DOL will determine which prevailing rates and practices apply. And the whole point of this is to give local laborers their fair opportunity to participate in building programs and to make sure that there's not essentially a race to the bottom and make sure that employees are paid a fair and prevailing wage. And I'll talk a little bit next about how this ties into FCA liability. So in particular, you want to make sure when you have laborers and mechanics that you are classifying these employees correctly and making sure that anyone who is devoting more than 20% of their time during a work week to mechanic or laborer duties, make sure that they are paid at the appropriate prevailing wage rate and fringe benefits. This includes apprentices and trainees. Often there's this desire among contractors to adjust the rates for trainees or apprentices because they're not necessarily performing at the same rate or productivity of some of the more skilled journeymen. That is not permitted unless they are specifically in a approved apprenticeship program that has its own rates and percentage basically of the prevailing wage that is applied. And so it's really important that you are familiar with those obligations to pay prevailing wage rates because if you are not, it is very easy to essentially commit a violation of the Davis-Bacon and unwillingly walk into FCA territory. I do want to point out, though, that this is only going to apply to employees who are working on the site of the work. Generally, in construction, this is where most work is going to be performed. However, there are circumstances, for example, where you have folks working off-site and they would not be subject to the requirements of the DBA. So I talked a little bit about paying the prevailing wage. You also want to make sure that you're paying attention to the fringe benefit that also shows up on the wage determination that is referenced in your contract. There's a couple ways to satisfy these two rates. You can either pay employees directly in cash, which would be taxed at the typical payroll rate, or you can satisfy it using a bona fide plan. When you're contributing to a plan, you want to make sure that you are paying employees at least the rate that's included in the wage determination. A really big issue when it comes to Davis-Bacon compliance is making sure that employees are classified in the right labor category. So unlike the Service Contract Act, which some of you might be familiar with, there is no directory of occupations that tells employees or companies where their work should be classified. 
Rather, you're going to look at the prevailing practices in the area. Where contractors sometimes walk into hot water is where they have classified individuals, maybe according to how they might do it in their own hometown or their own practices, while ignoring the local union practices. Even if you're not a union contractor, as I mentioned, in that wage determination, there will be an indication as to where the prevailing practices come from. So you want to make sure that you're looking at what the prevailing practice is for wage and labor classification in that locality. And I'll I'll provide an example of a recent case out of the Third Circuit that really hammers home just exactly why that's important. Another reason that we run into issues with the Davis-Bacon Act and the FCA is payroll certifications. Sai spoke earlier about this idea of express certifications. And this is one of the areas where construction contractors are going to have more opportunities to sort of stumble over FCA concerns. And that's because when you're performing on a Davis-Bacon contract, there is an obligation to submit weekly payroll certifications. These are essentially payroll certifications where you are confirming that employees are classified at a certain wage, labor category, paid a certain wage, and for a certain number of hours. And so every week, you're going to be signing off on a number of certifications to the government that confirm that you are paying employees correctly. This also flows down to subcontractors. So not only as a prime are you responsible for your own workers, but you're also responsible for collecting from subcontractors that certified payroll and submitting that in turn to the government. So the Davies-Bacon Act is requiring that you submit these certified payroll, and it's holding prime contractors specifically responsible for submitting the certified payroll for their subcontractors. Not just that, they're also obligated to ensure compliance with subcontractors. It's not sufficient just to slow down the obligations to your subcontractors. This is one of those areas where you really want to expend some additional energy making sure that they have properly complied with the Davis-Bacon requirements and with the service, with the requirements under the certified payroll. It's also important to note, payroll must be accompanied by a statement of compliance. So if you look at this, there's a form on DOL's website that essentially has a sample certified payroll that you can submit. It's not required that you submit in this form. However, it is convenient. So it's often the form that folks will use. And this form includes a statement of compliance that certifies that the payrolls are correct and complete and that each laborer on the contract has been paid not less than the proper Davis-Bacon prevailing wage rate for the work performed. It's going to include, as I mentioned, a number of information including the classification of the worker, the hourly rates of pay, the daily and weekly number of hours performed, any deductions made, and ultimately the actual wages paid. So as you can imagine, these are all areas where you can run into issues with the FCA because once you're certifying that this information is accurate and it's not accurate, you can run into some serious kind of problems. And this is also a area that is ripe for key TAM lawsuits because you have a lot of folks who are interested in raising wage rates, right? You have the employees themselves, and you often will have unions who are paying close attention to wages that are being paid in their locality and who are very interested in knowing whether contractors are maybe not complying with the direct DBA requirements. So I mentioned the form. It's payroll form 347, which can be used, but you can certainly Submit that information in a different form if required. If you do not submit the certified payroll, a contractor officer, they are able to withhold funds where you do not comply with these obligations. But that's really FCA concerns about compliance can be much more concerning. As I mentioned, there are severe penalties for FCA violations in addition to trouble damages for the actual money that was paid. In the circumstance for certified payroll, you're looking at a penalty for each certified payroll that has been submitted incorrectly. So if you look at each work week, you submit a certified payroll, let's say you're on a job for two years, before you know it, you're looking at tens of thousands of dollars in potential penalties based on the fact that some information was not necessarily correct. Some of the common certified payroll errors 
One issue is going to be the falsification of information related to either wages and fringes paid or mess classifying employees directly. I mentioned earlier that it's really important that you classify employees according to the prevailing practice and locality. Where you have misclassified employees because you didn't necessarily check with the union that this is the type of, for example, a carpenter, this is the type of work that a carpenter should be doing, there is case law precedent that has found that that can be an FCA violation based on reckless misclassification for not doing your due diligence when bidding on this work and performing the work. So the FCA is particularly unforgiving when it comes to classifications in the Davis-Bacon context. And you really want to make sure that if you have a carpenter or if you have an iron worker, they are classified as such and not classified as maybe a general laborer. The rule of thumb, as most of you probably know, is going to be whether they're picking up tools to perform the journeyman work that they perform. But it's always important that you have individuals on site who are going to be responsible for enforcing these obligations and making sure that contractors are classified correctly. You also want to make sure that you're including your subcontractor obligations of certified payroll. Again, each incorrect certified payroll can be an FCA violation, so it adds up pretty quickly. There are a number of cases that have been decided in the past, I don't know, five years that give some context around how courts are looking at these issues. So I mentioned this Third Circuit case a little bit earlier where the court found that a misclassification resulted in reckless disregard and in turn led to an FCA violation. One of the really disturbing aspects of this decision, which just came out this summer, was that DOL had already twice determined that there was no violation of the Davis-Bacon Act. They looked at the facts, they investigated, and they determined that the contractor had reasonably classified employees on the work site. However, the union ultimately filed an FCA claim, and in that claim, the court determined that there had been a reckless disregard for the appropriate classification. This is the only circuit that has determined this level of reckless disregard could result in FCA liability, but it is worth just paying attention to because this is, I think, as close as you're going to get to reckless disregard where someone really may not have had a good reason to know that they were misclassifying employees. Part of the problem in this case is that the contractor put their PM in charge of classification issues and never really educated their PM and made sure that he was familiar with DBA requirements. So it's important when you are performing work on in these types of circumstances to really make sure that your management on the ground is familiar with how to classify employees, how to pay employees, and putting someone in charge who doesn't necessarily know is not going to be a good defense in the FCA world. Another case that is actually from a few years ago in the Sixth Circuit had another sort of interesting approach to damages in the construction context. I spoke earlier about this idea of the entire value of a contract could be undermined by FCA liability. In this context, however, this is an example where a subcontractor had performed electrical work on the contract and they hadn't actually paid their electrical workers correctly. They had paid them about $3 less than the prevailing wage rate in the locality required. Originally, the district court determined that based on that mispayment, the subcontractor and in turn the prime contractor should not be entitled to any of the money that they were paid for the performance of the contract. The Sixth Circuit said that's unreasonable. We're not going to strip them of the entire value of the contract because that's not really what the government missed out on. In fact, they only missed out on about $10,000 per employee, which was essentially the amount of underpayment over the life of the contract. Therefore, in that decision, the Sixth Circuit ended up limiting the extent of damages owed, not to the entire worth of the contract, but instead only to the amount of underpayment. So sort of a silver lining in the FCA DBA world of case determinations. Finally, this last case resulted in a settlement, but it's interesting 
because it's a little bit different from the DBA obligations. It didn't deal with DBA compliance, but it did deal with one of the issues that Sci flagged earlier on, this idea of a reverse false claims act. In this case, which ultimately settled, a subcontractor was performing work for the Tennessee Valley Authority. And ultimately, through the contract, the government was essentially paying them for any hours worked and payroll taxes. And the government ended up paying more than the payroll taxes cost the subcontractor at the end of the day. The employee whistleblower alerted the government to this fact, and Bechtel and the subcontractor were alleged to have been in violation under a reverse false claims act. And this just shows sort of the fact that Sai touched on earlier, just because you don't have privity with the government doesn't mean that there cannot be an FCA claim against you. The subcontractor was potentially liable under the FCA based solely on the fact that it did not refund the government this overpayment. So this is very different from, I don't know, standing in line at a grocery store and having the clerk give you an extra few dollars and not going back because it's an inconvenience. It's always going to be worth making sure that the government has not overpaid you. I think that sort of wraps up, at least with respect to the DBA, there are some important takeaways. First and foremost, you want to make sure that you are familiar with the DBA requirements. Ignorance is no excuse in this circumstance, especially when it comes to classification issues. You want to make sure that you are familiar with what local prevailing practices are in your area so that you know which wage rate will apply. As always, you want to make sure that you're paying the prevailing wage and you understand prevailing practice. You want to obviously flow down clauses to subcontractors and make sure that you are correctly filling out information on your certified payroll. And I think that's it from the Davis-Bacon side of things. Yeah, I think on that point, just to kind of close this out, the issue with recklessness that we've talked about multiple times here, I've noticed that what DOJ will do is if you say, well, you know, I didn't know, or this was my interpretation of the regulation, and that's a reasonable interpretation, they'll say, all right, well, if that's what you're going with, you're saying that you had a reasonable interpretation, I want to see all of your copies of the relevant regulations. I want to see you know, your like internet history or what research did you do to try to understand what the rules set? If you simply just said, oh, I read it or I didn't dig deeply into it, I just went with my understanding of it, they usually say that doesn't get you past recklessness, that that's still reckless. You need to fully understand and or do a lot of research or, you know, rely upon like experts, whatever, to get it done. So just be aware of that, that just saying I didn't understand, like Sarah was saying, is certainly not, not enough. And even trying to figure it out isn't always enough. They're going to want to see that you really dug into the issues in order to be able to claim that you didn't do it knowingly or recklessly, that it was just mere negligence, which will get you out of an FCA issue. But it's a tough road to hoe because they see that all the time. And so they, the DOJ specialists really dug into that. So thanks, everybody. Have a great rest of the afternoon. Thanks, everyone. This podcast is a Polero Maza production and music credits go to bensound.com. Please subscribe and hear more on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your podcasts.